Hey everyone, Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics. Happy New Year. We're bringing you a conversation that I had earlier this week with legendary West Virginia radio host Howard Monroe on his show, setting the table for what to expect for this year in Trump, which is really the same thing as this year in politics. We're coming fresh off of the determination in Maine that Trump can't appear on the ballot there, as well as the legal case coming out of Colorado that had the same effect. So we got into an analysis of whether this was both the right legal approach to take and what the political fallout would be. And then we took a look at the broader contours of the 2024 race for the presidency, and what are the key drivers and data points to expect there. We'll always enjoy talking to Howard. And I just want to close out by saying thank you to everyone who has come in with ratings and reviews for the show. That is really helpful. And all of that and your listenership has pushed us up into the top 2% of all podcasts around the world. We really appreciate it. If you haven't had a chance to do that yet, just go ahead and in the Apple Podcasts app, scroll to the bottom of the episode list. You'll find an opportunity to write a review. And if you would leave us a quick review and, of course, a five-star rating, you can also leave ratings in other podcast apps. It really helps us out. That kind of feedback and engagement will help continue to push us up the list and help us continue through the rest of 2024 to bring you the kinds of conversations and interviews and analysis that we love to do and hopefully you enjoy hearing. So with that... That's it. Let's get into my conversation with Howard Monroe. Now we're into January. Filing deadline, filing begins next Monday. Now everybody who has said they're going to run has to put up or shut up beginning next Monday. And they have a month to do that. And uh, then we're really, then we're off and running. We're off to the races or whatever. I invited our old friend Matt Robeson to join us here at the start of the year to kind of do a little overview of where we might see of the presidential race coming in this year, in particular about Donald Trump. Matt is a former campaign consultant, former congressional staffer, podcaster, broadcaster. He does a lot of uh, online work, uh, writing for uh, Newsweek and some other online magazines. And he's here with us this morning. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Howard. Happy New Year. How was your holiday? It was excellent. I have a very important technical question for you. What is the statute of limitations on wishing someone a happy new year? When, when is it no longer socially acceptable to do that? I think you could wish, I'll tell you what, I think you can wish happy new year a significantly longer period of time than you can wish someone Merry Christmas. I agree. You know, Merry Christmas, you know, you know, a couple a couple of days after Christmas is like, OK, yeah, thanks, Chris. But that's done. New Year's, you know, at least a month, maybe, you know, it's still good to say Happy New Year. You could do that, I think. So I guess you could do it all year long. My I've been telling the audience this morning, I, I don't make resolutions and my mottos, two of them. One of them is to stay alive till 25. I think that's a good motto. <laughs> Aim high, Howard. Yes, indeed. And the other is to do more in 24. Oh, wow. That's your rhyming and alliteration is uh, it's brilliant. It's, yeah, well, it's actually great. Yeah. Then one of my listeners texted me and said, actually, get Monroe out the door in 24. So I that's stretching it a little bit. I actually I love those. Mine is I go through this annual exercise when I'm sending out my holiday cards. And I do some on paper and I do some electronic and my electronic is sort of a it's a compendium of people who have been important to me in my life over the last several decades. Ooh. Boy, I feel old. And <laughs> what I found is, gosh, there were a lot of people who were like really in my inner circle that I now send a card to, but I'm not really in touch with. So my goal for 24, I'm not going to say resolution is, 
I want to reconnect with and stay in touch with the people I enjoy spending time with in my life. And I'm going to put you at the top of the list. My goal is I want to keep hanging out with you on the radio. We'll do that uh, more. Now that we're, we're in the presidential year now, and we do a lot of presidential talking, and of course other politics do. So, yeah, we'll make a point of, of chatting a bit more. I want to talk a lot about what Trump's year is likely to be like. I want to talk about the 14th Amendment and presidential immunity and Supreme Court and so on. But before we get to Trump specifically, let's ask this question. Will the election be Biden and Trump? Is that actually what we're going to see? You know, a new AP poll came out beginning of last month. 56% of all adults will be dissatisfied with Biden as the Democratic nominee, and 58% of all adults dissatisfied with Trump as the Republican nominee. So any shot that the two of them will not be the nominees? I would have said that there was a glimmer of a hope that we wouldn't have Trump a little bit more before Nikki Haley went and said at a New Hampshire town hall that she couldn't put her finger on what the cause of the Civil War was. It's, it's a word that begins with S. Can't, can't remember what it might be. Easiest question in American or perhaps world history. That, that seemed to be a little bit of a momentum killer. I do think that it's overwhelmingly likely. The thing that we keep having put in our faces over and over again over the last few years is, well, we've never seen fill-in-the-blank before, but now we have. Like, we've never seen an insurrection before, but now we have. We've never seen a former U.S. president get indicted before, but now we have four times on 91 counts. And there is some historic precedent, uh, obviously the 1968 presidential race for both an incumbent president and a, an overwhelmingly unpopular nominee, Richard Nixon, kind of shooting up late or dropping out late. So it could happen. And we have unprecedented factors at play here, in, including the legal calendar. It still looks overwhelmingly likely, but we are now in a stretch of history where, you know, we've never seen these things before until we do. And so is it possible? Yeah, it is. It is possible. I just if I were going to bet a load of money, I would put it on Biden and Trump. Uh, Biden is got a lot of Democrats nervous a lot. Uh, and things have gotten a little bit worse in recent months because of the Israeli situation and uh, some of the uh, pro-Palestinian groups that maybe had been in, in Biden's corner beginning to fray a little bit about Biden and some other issues have come up. There's the continuing attack on his mental acuity by the right wing that seems to be taking hold. A lot of Democrats, and I'll be honest with you, Matt, I'm one of them thinking, man, I wish we had somebody else. I think if we had somebody else, this is I'm not going to make you feel better, Howard. I'm going to make you feel a little bit worse. I think if we had somebody else, we'd be in the same basic position. I, I'm not sure that Biden is the biggest problem here. I think the biggest problem we have is structural, that we've entered a phase in the American political battleground and, and dynamic where things are pretty locked in and we are balanced on a razor's edge between the two parties. And I think the outcome of the 2024 election is fundamentally unknowable, and it's going to come down to all kinds of factors that we simply cannot predict. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to do the audio version of doom scrolling here, <laughs> but in 2016, if 78,000 people out of the 300 and what do we have, 70 million in the United States, if 78,000 people had voted differently in just three states, 
Hillary Clinton would have been president. In 2020, if only 45,000 people had voted uh, against uh, Biden in, in three states and voted for Trump, we would have had Trump again, 45,000 people. And there are only five states, five states that have switched their selection for president in the last two elections. 45 of the states have voted the same way in the last two presidential elections. 95 out of 100 senators are from the same party as the presidential candidate who carried their state in 2020. And 94% of our House reps, same deal. And so what it's really coming down to is five, maybe up to eight states that are going to matter, and probably on the order of tens of thousands of voters and their decision to show up and their decision on who they vote for. That is the razor's edge we're on. And so just to bring it full circle, yes, I'm not thrilled about Biden's current standing in the polls, but I will tell you now that if it were Gretchen Whitmer, Jared Polis, Gavin Newsom, or Kamala Harris, I think a lot of this is baked in, and I think we'd be in much the same position looking out ahead to November 2024 and a fundamentally unknowable result that depends on very volatile factors. And all of this ties into the deep divide in this country. You know, we have the left, the right, and a tiny sliver, really, that goes down the middle of those five to eight states you talked about. It's because, you know, the, the reason that every state votes the same way every time, or most every time, is because we have just become so divided. West Virginia is a red state, and we know where we're going to go, and there's not a shot in Hades that anything's going to change in West Virginia. Same thing is true in many other states because of this division that we have in our society. And also, uh, Matt, to some extent, because of the ability of the right-wing media in particular to create an illusion of distress for Joe Biden, for example. I posted a piece on my Facebook page last night from the Washington Post. E.J. Dion wrote a piece about the fact that every economic, and you've written about this, I think, as a matter of fact yourself, every economic number is good. Not just good, it's very good. Consumer confidence is high. Retail sales were up in, in, in the holiday season. And yet there is this Eeyore-type attitude among the American, oh, whoa, is me, things are bad. And in point of fact, they're not. And yet they've been convinced things are bad. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Absolutely. I mean, retail sales are up 3.1% compared to a year ago. And that is in line with measures of consumer confidence. We've just seen a surge, the most since 2021. Uh, Americans are spending money. They're feeling optimistic. When they tell surveyors how they feel, they say, we think the economy is getting better. We think we're going to have we're going to see a better labor market and we're going to see an improvement in inflation. The numbers bear that out. Core inflation only rose 0.1 percent in November, a a total of 3.2 percent, a very moderate amount over the past year. And so all the numbers bear that out. But we're in the middle of what some wags are calling a vibes session. And people are telling pollsters that they think the economy is worse than at the height of the Great Recession, which is patently untrue. But yet, yes, I mean, I think we're vulnerable to the blowhards on Fox News who are constantly yelling at us. And look, I'll give you one more example. The FBI crime statistics just came out, and 
Violent crime is down. Murders are down 13 percent in many cases to their lowest levels that we've seen in 60 years. But that ain't going to be what you hear on Fox News. I'll tell you that much. No, that's exactly right. And that is, you know, that's part of the problem. Some Now, I, I want to throw a quick caveat in here before I get a text from some of my listeners who say, but, you know, not everybody is doing well. I understand that. Stock market doing well. Consumer confidence doing well. Inflation is being tamed. All of the things you just talked about. I understand that there are still people who are having trouble. I, I get that. And when you are having trouble, the, those other numbers don't make any difference. And that's part of the problem. Matt, before I take a, a news break, and then I want to spend the second half talking about Trump and his particular problems, what about the possibility of a third-party candidate? There actually are third-party candidates already in there, but what about the possibility of a significant third-party candidate like RFK Jr., or Lord help us, like our very own Senator Joe Manchin getting into this game? I would never rule out any outcome anymore. That would be foolish. So, you know, if if you're asking... What about the possibility that they could win? I would say, sure, anything's possible. You know, it's the Lloyd Christmas line from Dumb and Dumber. You know, it's one in a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Sure, exactly. There's there's a chance. Now, Anything is possible. They could write me in. They could write my name in and I could win. That's possible. It's pretty unlikely. Yeah, as, (laughs) as the philosopher Kevin Garnett once screamed, anything is possible. But, I mean... The the much higher likelihood, unfortunately, is that one of these candidates could exert a tremendous influence on the outcome in a bad way. And that's the concern. And that's my concern. A third party candidate's not going to win. I mean, I can't see that, uh, despite the fact that, you know, Joe Manchin and I have had this disagreement, actually. But I don't think a third party candidate can win. But they can make a huge influence in the election. Absolutely. We saw it with Gary Johnson, 2016, getting 3% of the vote likely tilting the outcome, and Jill Stein in that same election, her votes alone probably swung Wisconsin against Hillary Clinton of the three states that made up that triumvirate of 78,000 votes that turned the election. So absolutely, and we're seeing RFK Jr., Cornell West, their vote share in polling is accounting for a reasonable chunk. Now, look, again, I'll just reiterate that it doesn't matter. Good news, West Virginia, your vote doesn't matter. Do what you want. <laughs> it does not matter. I'm not trying to encourage people. What did MTV used to do? Rock the vote. Unrock the vote. Do do whatever you want with your vote. It won't affect the outcome because it's in the bag. Uh, it only matters if you happen to reside in one of five, maybe eight special states. And there it matters a heck of a lot. And so what you really, what we're going to want to keep an eye on is polling in those states and how third-party candidates are doing there. And I hate to say it, but it it could be a real factor. And, you know, we could have a real Ralph Nader moment here where we really rue the existence of Cornell West on the ballot or or RFK Jr. on the ballot in, say, Pennsylvania, if things go south for Biden there. And we do need to point out, we talk about RFK Jr., we talk about Joe Manchin, if, if Manchin were to get into this, and again, he keeps saying he's not going to, and yet everything he talks about seems to suggest that he would have an interest in it. Those names would be significant. They could draw significant numbers of people, not winning numbers of people, but significant numbers of voters. I say that because we begin with, as you just said, there are already a couple of, quote, third-party candidates or other candidates out there 
I think Marianne Williams is running again. Is she not? I'm trying to think who else is there. There are a couple of others that are already planning to be on the ballot. They'll be small, but they're there. Then you, if you were to add in an RFK Jr. or a Joe Manchin were he to get into it, or someone with more heft, that would that would simply amp up that the votes that would go away from the main candidates, and that could make a huge difference. Right. They, what's probably happening is, you know, I've talked about this with some of the major on my show on Beyond Politics. We've talked with experts who are tracking these third party candidates and no labels, the group that's courting Joe Manchin. And, you know, what these what the approach that they make to people like Senator Manchin is, well, look at the polls. There are so many what are called in the polling industry double haters they they don't like joe biden they they don't like donald trump and that you know look there's a big opportunity the reality is there's not a big opportunity the the third party vote isn't sitting out there there's not a candidate who could garner it i actually made a case in newsweek maybe if the rock ran as a third party candidate right now like maybe he could draw a more significant share of the vote but i mean Gary Anderson in 1980 got like 7% of the vote nationally. Ross Perot, I think, got up to 20 and, and, and probably did tilt the election against George H.W. Bush and for Bill Clinton. But no, there's, there's no path. There's no path there. All you can do is be a spoiler and introduce right. another factor of randomness into 2024. And I don't think that's something that anyone is relishing. All right, I need to take a break. When we come back, Matt, I want to talk specifically about what will 2024 mean for Donald Trump? Is he going to jail or back to the Oval Office? Or is there some other option out there for him? And what will the Supreme Court do when they get issues like presidential immunity and the 14th Amendment? Matt Robeson is with us here, among other things. His podcast is Beyond Politics. You'll find it wherever podcasts are found. All right, Matt Robeson is with us. Matt is the uh, is a uh, political consultant, a political commentator. We talk to him frequently about matters uh, on the national scene, and today we're talking about the presidential election of 2024. It's now really in the home, I won't say home stretch, but we're now in the real race. And I wanted to talk, Matt, a little bit about today Donald Trump. We've obviously talked about him almost every day or frequently. There's a lot of stuff going on with Trump, but some of the issues are are kind of coming to a head right now. Let's talk about the 14th Amendment just for a minute. Up until past couple of weeks, of the states who have been who have had the 14th Amendment question raised before them, up until a couple of weeks ago, uh, they all have basically said no, we're not going to Trump is not going to be disqualified because of the 14th Amendment. But we now do have two states, one from a Supreme Court in Colorado, the other from the Secretary of State in Maine, who are saying Trump cannot be on the ballot. Is the 14th Amendment going to that's really hard to say. It's a major dilemma. And then there's a distinction that you just drew there that I think is really important. In Colorado, it was a judicial ruling. In Maine, it was the Secretary of State, Jenna Bellows. I actually go back like 25 years with Jenna. She's been on Beyond Politics before. I actually reached out to her after her ruling, and I was like, look, you're the most popular political person on, in the world right now. Why don't you come on my show over everyone else? <laughs> Uh, and we'll talk about this. She's a little busy right now, so but I still want people to subscribe to Beyond Politics because maybe we'll get her in uh, the next week or two. I'd like to talk to her about this. I mean, I will tell you that Shenna is one of the most rational, linear thinkers, organized, extraordinarily intelligent people that I've ever worked with. And so do I, Matt Robeson, trust Shenna Bellows to make critical decisions? I do. 
But as a system matter, as a process matter, I think the question, to your point, that's going to come before the Supreme Court is, should the secretaries of state be empowered to make these evaluations? Now, the plain language reading of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment seems to suggest, and this isn't me saying, this is very educated, high-level constitutional scholars, conservative constitutional scholars, Michael Ludig, federal appeals court judge, a, a staunch conservative, saying that this language, which bars people who have been engaged in insurrection from holding office, is what they call self-executing. Mm. You don't need anything else. It just stands that any state has the power to determine that someone who's done that can't appear on the ballot. And indeed, Neil Gorsuch, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, in earlier opinions when he was a federal appeals court judge back in 2012, has written in other cases that states can make these determinations when it's constitutionally clear that someone is ineligible to hold office. And that decision has been cited by the Colorado Supreme Court in making their determination that Trump can't appear on the ballot there. So there is an argument that he is going to be that he should be based on just a, a plain language reading of the Constitution that he should be barred from appearing on the ballot. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. The, the counter argument that that, that, oh, go, go that, that, yeah. that goes to the point that some want to make. Is how can you claim that because he has not been convicted of, of insurrection? That's not really what, as you say, a lot of legal scholars say that this is a self-determining clause in the Constitution. It doesn't require a conviction. It doesn't require conviction in the courts. It requires a decision made at a state level of some kind. That's exactly right. Now, I do think that there is an opening here, and I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm at least curious about the argument. It, it resonates with me, th this argument that there should be a judicial determination. What makes me, I think, a little bit uncomfortable, he, as much as I want Donald Trump, I mean, I want the guy blasted into space, you know, like I, I don't want him anywhere near the ballot, but... As much as I, I feel very strongly about that, it does make me very uncomfortable that my old friend Shenna is the one. Now, she's a lawyer, so that's good. But, you know, there are lots of secretaries of state in this country who are not attorneys who could be in this position of making this determination. They're certainly not judges. They're actually appointed. They're not elected in, in Maine. They're appointed by the legislature. Now, that's good. You know, because you have people that the people have voted for making that decision. And again, I trust Shenna personally. Like, I would happily put her in charge of many decisions in my life. But do we want an extrajudicial proceeding to make this determination? And, that and does make me a little bit uncomfortable, Howard. I, 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 got to admit. I hear where you're coming from. And yet, I actually feel more comfortable with a secretary of state making this ruling than a court. And my philosophy is this. It is the job of your chief elections officer, generally secretaries of state. I don't know if other states use different titles, but your chief elections officer, that person's job is to determine whether someone meets the qualifications or does not. Do they have enough signatures on their petition? Are they of proper age for the office? Do they live in the right district? 
et cetera, et cetera, that whatever the qualifications for the office are. It is that person, the chief elections officer, who determines qualifications. Therefore, I feel comfortable in seeing the Secretary of State say, I have read the Constitution and I am of the belief that he is not qualified. I think that's exactly where the decision process ought to be, more so than the courts. All right, as Sam Jackson said in Pulp Fiction, allow me to retort. I actually, I like your argument very much, although that didn't go anywhere good in Pulp Fiction. So I'll drop that one now. In the cases that you just alluded to, where secretaries of state are making findings of fact, they're very obvious findings of fact. Uh, the, The case that is being cited in these legal rulings in Colorado that Neil Gorsuch himself wrote was about whether a candidate for president was a citizen of the United States. The individual in this case was not, and therefore was plainly ineligible to assume the office that he wanted to run for and could be excluded from the ballot. An earlier case also cited involved a 27-year-old man who wanted to appear on the ballot to run for president, not eligible to assume that office. And that's a simple determination of fact. In this case, what we have is Shenna making a determination, I should call her Secretary of State Bellows, but we have Shenna making a determination about finding a fact, a pattern of facts. Did Donald Trump engage in an insurrection? Now, obviously, he freaking did from my standpoint, but I'm also not a court. I'm not a court of law. There is no due process involved. And I have some sympathy for the argument that if this were being heard in a court, as it will be, There would be an opportunity for Donald Trump to introduce evidence for his attorneys to cross-examine witnesses, to know what the evidence is that's being held against him. There would be access to the full sheaf of evidence, which the January 6th committee had, but Shanna perhaps did not. And so at some point, this will find its way to the Supreme Court and they will give some sort of indication of who has the authority, if anybody has the authority, if the 14th Amendment even holds here. Matt, I want to take a break because I want to ask you the ultimate question when we come back. Donald Trump, 2024, does he go to jail or back to the Oval Office, or is there some other option? So, Matt, the ultimate question I have is, at the end of this year, when the election time comes, when the year is over, will Donald Trump be in jail in the Oval Office, or is there some other option for him? What's your opinion? I, if I have to choose what's more likely between those two, I'd say it's more likely that he's president, that he's in jail. You think, into the, you think he will win the election and therefore be, be president once again? It's the same, but he, yeah, between those two. If I had to pick just one, you know, I'd go president over jail because I think there's too many bar- – like, you know, you've got to get through the legal calendar. That's no sure bet. And then he's got to get convicted. No sure bet. And then – the judge has got to decide we're going to send a former president to jail. And I think all three of those, you know, it, it makes for an unlikely course. And he's got, you know, maybe a 50-50 shot of being president again. That's just the reality. So higher likelihood. If I was uh, if I thought Donald Trump was a normal thinking man, I would suggest that he would try and find a way out of this box uh, and just say, look, I'll agree to not be president, you know, whatever, but I don't want I don't want to run the risk of going to jail. And then there's the possibility that, you know, I, th- I believe all of the other Republican candidates, and if not all, most of them have said they would pardon him if he were to be convicted and they were to be elected. He would they would pardon him. 
Yeah, they've also said that they would support him if they were the nominee, if he were the nominee, which just goes to show. I mean, on top of Nikki Haley's pandering to Southern white racists, you know, the other day with refusing to name slavery as the cause of the Civil War, just what a dire state today's Republican Party is in. The uh, the reality is that even though we have not even hit file, I don't know if the presidential filing deadlines have come or gone. I'm talking about local, but really we don't even file for office yet, so we're just really beginning. There's a long time away between now and Election Day. Maybe not primary day, but certainly Election Day. A lot of things could happen. Trump has got all kinds of you know legal issues to try and resolve. Supreme Court's going to have to be getting involved in a couple of these issues, like the 14th Amendment, like presidential immunity. And you know, will Biden find a way to recover from the malaise that seems to be surrounding him? There's a lot that could happen between now and Election Day. Absolutely. And that's why I go back to the beginning of our conversation. And I think that as much as if I were listening to this, I would want to hear some reassurance that Biden will pull through. No one can give that. Anyone who's selling that doesn't know what they're talking about. There are too many factors that are fundamentally unpredictable and unknowable for us to make any confident determination. I do agree with you that there are some big dates coming up in the next two months. You know, and look, I, I think what we can look at is that dynamic that I spoke to a few moments ago, the double haters, the double. Right now, Biden in polling has a four-point lead with voters who dislike both candidates. That's going to be a critical measure to watch. I, I, we get that voters are sour on Biden. They're sour on the state of the economy. They're sour on the state of the world. I'm with them. I'm not thrilled with the way things are in the world either. But that's not the question. The question is, if it's Biden and Trump, who are you going to vote for? Right now, that's advantage Biden, and that's a huge deal. So that's what I would keep an eye on going into 2024. We'll talk a lot more about this as time goes by, Matt. Meanwhile, people can follow you on Beyond Politics. You do some writing online. Blue, I always forget that, your YouTube channel. Blue Amp. Blue, Blue Amp on Blue, YouTube. Blue Amp on YouTube can find you there. And I appreciate your time today, as always. We'll do it again soon. Thanks so much, Howard. Have a great new year. Till we right. talk again. You too. Matt Robeson, former political consultant, campaign consultant, and uh, congressional staffer with us here.